The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films, but our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. Talking from the bedroom of Norma Desmond. Don't bother with a rewrite, man. Take this direct. Ready? As day breaks over the murder house. Yes, you'll read the big black headlines about Norma Desmond and this Hollywood scandal. But you'll never read the true story about the rest of us who were part of it. Me, for instance. Joe Gillis, a promising young writer from Dayton, Ohio. And Betty, that nice kid I met at a Hollywood party who knew nothing about me, but knew what she wanted. Don't you love Artie? Of course I love him. I always will. I'm just not in love with him anymore. What happened? You did? Well, we should have lived happily ever after, like they do in the movies. But this was different. Because this is a Hollywood story about the people who make the movies. The little ones that you never hear of, like Betty and me. The great ones, like Cecil B. DeMille. All those who knew Norma Desmond, a strange woman who left her mark on all of us, who crossed her path. Has it ever occurred to you that I may have a life of my own, that there, there may be some girl that I'm crazy about? Who? Some car hop or a dress extra? What I'm trying to say is that I'm all wrong for you. You want a Valentino, somebody with polo ponies, a big shot. What you're trying to say is you don't want me to love you. Say it. Say it. Gloria Swanson, one of the great personalities of this generation in a role that comes to an actress once in a lifetime. Rising to the heights, William Holden creates a startling portrayal. And a new star is born in Sunset Boulevard, Miss Nancy Olson. Joe? Where are you? What's this all about? Why don't you come out and see for yourself? The address is 10,086 Sunset Boulevard. Yes, come out to see for yourself the film that reaches a new milestone of dramatic daring. The film that every critic says is a giant among motion pictures. Hey guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm your host Jimbo. And I'm your co-host Kyle. Kyle, today we are doing one of my picks, uh, the legendary movie Sunset Boulevard. Kyle, have you ever seen this movie before we did this podcast? I have known about its legacy, but I never sat down and watched it myself. Right, me either. Jimbo, i got a question for you. Why did you choose this film? 
uh, because Kyle, I was going through the top 100 movies on IMDb or not, uh, America AFI, mm-hmm. and this was one of the ones that popped up, and I had owned it on Blue, uh, Voodoo. So I said, well, "Sure, let's give it a shot." Going in blind, a time of convenience. Going awesome. in blind, not knowing what it was, but okay. you know that's why we do this podcast because, like I said, there's some of the top 100 movies that they claim of all time. I think this comes in right around uh, anywhere from eight to twelve from the ones I saw, maybe as low as sixteen mm-hmm. or high as sixteen, but. Uh, an outstanding performance, um, just great. Absolutely. Okay. So, Kyle, mm-hmm. if I asked you to name me somebody not named Gloria Swanson, who is a was a silent actor, who would you say? Oh gosh, Jimbo, I couldn't even begin. Really, uh, I think like the Nosferatu actor. Who was that guy? <laughs> like that's that's probably about as good as I'm going to get. Well, no, no, uh, no, Charlie Chaplin. That's 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 probably what I should have said, but you're right. <laughs> I know who Charlie Chaplin is. You know, um, no Buster Keaton. Yeah, Buster Keaton would have been fine too. Um, yeah, I mean, there's actors of that era for sure, but that kind of like, yeah, that's that's a compression of time where it's like anything before the 50s might as well be one time frame. Wasn't wasn't you know. also Lon Chaney and then like the 1923 Hunchback of Notre Dame or something where it was. Uh, yeah, there's some of that stuff too going on there. So like, there's some definitely notable like yeah. So and, just say you don't know any silent movies there, Kyle. That's probably the real thing. It was like, you know, honestly, I, I'm more audio based for the movies I watch at home, especially because I'm usually doing something offhand, like an ADHD thing. <laughs> it's like, like I have the movie in the background and, and, I, always, and I listen to it while I'm crocheting and not playing video games. <laughs> so, <laughs> wouldn't that um, be that funny sort of relation? Turned out, I just I love crocheting. <laughs> That'd be one of the things surprised me with. So, um, uh, I did something a little different this time before Kyle start going on his rant of everything. <laughs> I uh, like I did a little thing. mini mini bio uh, on the main actress in this film, uh, Gloria Swanson. So I figured I'll throw it in here right here before Kyle starts going into the technical details and all, all that right. stuff. So here we go. Go for it, Jimbo. Uh, Gloria Swanson. She was, uh, to say the least, she was a star in Hollywood before Hollywood was Hollywood, if that's even possible. Uh, she basically helped build Paramount Studios. Um, and here's a little uh, something about her. So, Gloria Swanson, she was born March uh, 27, 1899 in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, and she died April 4, 1983 in New York City due to a heart ailment. And she was only 4 foot 11 inches tall. 4 foot 11. Uh, she started out as a sales clerk in a department store. Um, and then her aunt said one day, hey, let's go uh, to, uh, to Chicago, in Chicago to see where this uh, movie, the Chicago movie show, to see how the movies are made in 1915. At age 18, um, she was picked out of the audience for her beauty <laughs> to have a part in the upcoming film The Fable of Ira and Farina and the Mill Ticket. Yes, say that five times fast. Um, she was married six times. Six times, wow. By the middle of 1925, she was the highest paid actress in Hollywood. It has been said she made and spent over eight million dollars in the twenties alone. That'd be, the, that'd be like over one hundred fifty million dollars today. By the time yeah. of her death in nineteen eighty three, her gross estate was valued at how much, Kyle? I think I just said one hundred fifty million dollars. So that'd be if the equivalent of eight million dollars. No, no, yeah. So, so you're saying her at the time of her death? Oh, at the time of her death. How much was her estate worth? How much was her estate worth? Uh, in gross total, like if it, assuming you've like retained the value of eight million dollars, that'd be about one hundred twenty-five, hundred fifty million dollars today. But that was just yeah. in nineteen twenty-five. Yeah. So, well, no, nineteen twenty-five would have been worth you know around eight million dollars then, then one hundred twenty-five million dollars today. So you don't think she did anything else after nineteen twenty-five? Is what I'm asking you. No, nineteen fifty to now. Um, I'm fifty. Well, if you have nineteen fifty for the film's release here, oh, this this one, yeah. But she she yeah. made all of her money before this, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this film probably didn't make that much money for her before she passed away. So I mean, I'm guessing somewhere probably like, I guess she didn't accrue that much more money to the end of her career from the eight million dollars to nineteen fifty before her passing. Um, so probably less than ten million dollars, which would probably be more you know close. She to like in nineteen eighty three, her gross estate was valued at just over one million four hundred forty thousand dollars. Oh, so she spent a lot of money. Okay. Um, she did do a book, uh, 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 helped write her autobiography. There's a book called Swanson on Swanson mm-hmm. um, that I was reading a little bit on. I might have to get in and read it uh, just because I'm really uh, intrigued. Find a signed copy. Uh, some dollars. other notable things from her. She was considered for the role of Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. Um, 
Kyle. She was the vis- visual inspirations for original illustrations of Morticia Adams and the Adams families published in The New Yorker in 1938. Wow. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. I can see it. Hey, Kyle, she was awarded two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one at 6750 Hollywood Boulevard and one for television at 6301 Hollywood Boulevard, Hollywood, California. And there's only, when we looked it up before we put this program, there's like only about a dozen stars that can share that same art, including yeah. like Dolly Parton. But there's only yeah. one that has all that five. That has five stars on the Walk of Fame, and that was Gene Autry. Yeah, Gene Autry. Five stars on Hollywood. Uh, something I don't else. even know you can get more than one star in Hollywood. <laughs> I thought you'd get one, and that's the whole idea. We love you. You have, one, you have a star now. She was uh, superstitious and had certain rituals, such as sleeping with her head pointed due north. Um, insisting at times that the hotel make arrangements for her and her guests to meet the accommodations. That's weird, but funny. Uh, she had an abortion at 17 with her marriage to a Wallace Beasy. I can't read my handwriting. Uh, she says this is one of the biggest regrets of her life. And here we go, Kyle, to close this up. Uh, her salary at the beginning uh, when she started working, I believe it was, what, 1915, if I remember right? Yeah. $3.25 a day, which we, was inflated to $98.05 for the inflation calculator as today. Today's currency is almost $100 almost a day. Almost $100 a day, which, you know, not if they were not If terrible. they work seven days a week or five days a week yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, a year later, I think in 1916, it went up to $85 a week, which was about 2500 a week. Yes, in 1921, she went to $2,500 a week, uh, which ended up, what did you say, $42,000 in today's money? Yeah, around there. And in 1923, she was making $6,500 a week or roughly $116,000 a week after inflation. Yeah. (laughs) That's insane. That is crazy. Yeah, it's like $15,000 a day. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, she, she, she was the highest paid actress, and I will get to it. Uh, for six years, I think, for Paramount. Yeah, absolutely insane. So um, yeah. I had never heard of Gloria Swanson, I'll be honest. But when you start diving into somebody's career and life like this, you you just can't stop. It's just like a rabbit hole. You go down and you keep finding stuff that parallels to the movie, to her life. To yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely, too. Yeah, yeah. So, Kyle, uh, go ahead and take it away, then. All right, Jimbo. So we have Sunset Boulevard, released on August 10th, 1950. Um, directed by Billy Wilder, also of course for um, uh, famous for writing and directing um, uh, Double Indemnity and a few other films. Mill, he has like some of the uh, I think WGA's top three film, like top ten films. He has three of them for writing because oh, <laughs> sure. he's a great writer. Um, so directed by Billy Wilder, Billy Wilder, sorry, written by Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder and Martian and Marshman Jr. Produced by Charles Brackett, composed by Franz Waxman. And cinematographer was John F. Seats. Budget for the film was a whopping $1.75 million, um, which I gotta say, it sounds pretty expensive for the time, actually, um, for, for a film such as this. So it's kind of amazing, kind of the investment for the film going on early on there. Um, just for inflation, that'd be about $21.1 million today, too. So, you know, you know overall, compared to films today, costing, you know, hundreds of million dollars or half a billion dollars, you know, nothing, dropping the bucket practically. Um, but even back then, though, you know, Million point seven sounds like a lot for a film, in my humble opinion. Um, opening weekend, um, really um, kind of seen to disappoint and gross worldwide. Uh, but opening weekend only made one hundred sixty nine thousand dollars. Just for inflation, that'd be about two point one million dollars today. So, like you know, only like less than a tenth of its original budget. So that's a uh, disappointing there. And then gross worldwide, we have three hundred thousand dollars and seventy three hundred thousand seventy three dollars, which would be worth about three point eight million dollars today. So I'd be curious to see, um, this is on the IMDb's official page there about the gross earnings there. I'm curious to see what kind of lifetime earnings Sunset Boulevard must have made, especially during like after the year of award seasons when we got every single award in the world kind of thing. Um, how much money it's made in its lifetime sales, because surely it's had a lasting impact that more than made up for its Definitely. original budget. You know, almost certainly. Um, quick little plot summary of the film. This is written by Claudio Carvel Car- um, Carvel Ho um, from Brazil. In the early 1950s Hollywood, obscure screenplay writer Joe Gills is unable to sell his work to studios, is full of debts, and is thinking of returning to his hometown to work in an office. 
While trying to escape from his creditors, he has a flat tire and parks his car in a decadent mansion in Sunset Boulevard. He meets the owner of an and he meets the owner and a former silent movie star, Norma Desmond, who lives alone with her butler and driver, Max von Merlin. Norma is demented and believes she will return to the cinema industry and is protected and isolated from the world by Max, who was her director and husband in the past and still loves her. Norma proposes Joe to move to the mansion and help her in writing a screenplay for a comeback to the cinema. And the small-time writer becomes her lover and gigolo, for a better trend, for about a better word. <laughs> when Joe falls in love with a young, aspiring writer, Betty Schaefer, Norma becomes jealous and completely insane, and her madness leads to a tragic end. Man, it does it ever. And this is definitely a film, like, from the beginning, you know the end, because it literally starts with... Uh, how, how good is that opening shot, though? Oh, yeah, it's incredible. You know, just, uh, yeah. Um, actually, I was looking at the YouTube video, though. They changed it, because, like, the original scene was literally two dead people talking in a morgue. Yeah, yeah. And everyone was the doctor in the morgue or whatever, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so everyone laughed at that because they thought it was so absurd. So they adjusted this beginning to having you know the dead man floating in a pool. It's like the, it yeah, there's you see a dead man. Uh, the cops are coming down. And you see a dead man floating in the pool, and that <laughs> shot that they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll get to the trivia, but they, they put a mirror, uh, shot a mirror at the bottom of the pool or something where they just got if they shot it at an angle, they could shoot him and the police looking down on him, which was. That might be one of the greatest shots in cinema history. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to the awards here for the film. Um, we're going to go kind of everywhere a little bit, so I'm going to kind of skip over some things and um, focus on some other things. But like even very recently, for the 2022 Online Film and Television Association, the character Glory Swanson was added to the OFTA Film Hall of Fame. Mm. Um, for the 2003 Online Film and Television Association also, they added the film itself to the, the uh, Motion Picture Hall of Fame as well. So both her character and film are in the film. Uh, are in the film Hall of Fame, sorry. Um, next up, in 1989, this film was added to the National Film Preservation Board's registry, so that it could be preserved in perpetuity. In 1952, uh, shortly after the film released, it won the award for Best Foreign Language Film, awarded to Billy Wilder for his directorial efforts. Now we're going to go to the Academy Awards of 1951, where it was nominated for Best Cinematography for a Black and White Film, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Best Actress in a Supporting Role, Best Actress in a Leading Role, Best Film Editing, Best Actor in a Leading Role. And it won Best Writing Story and Screenplay, directed to Billy Wilder, and it won also Best Art Set Direction and for a Black and White Film. Um, and let's see, make sure it also won the Oscar for Best Music Scoring for a Dramatic or Comedy Picture to Franz Waxman as well. So those are the Oscar nominations and the wins right there. I think they won five total Oscars out of the 11 they were nominated, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little... Um, we only have a one for three Oscar awards. And there's another 16 wins we'll go through oh, the okay. list here. <coughs> Excuse me. Next up for the 1951 Bo Dill Awards, it won the award for Best American Film. Um, for the, um, I believe it's a German, um, the, yeah, I'm not going to ruin that pronunciation for you, but the Bordeaux Awards, I believe, are a German awards institution from the 1950s. Next up for the 1951 Directors Guild of America, it was nominated for the Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Motion Pictures. Then for the Golden Globes, we have a win for, oh, this might be where we have a five here, because I see at least four. Um, we have the nominations for Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Screen Actor. Um, and next up for the wins, we have Best Actress to Gloria Swanson, Best Motion Picture in the Drama Category, Best Director to Billy Wilder, and Best Original Score to Franz Waxman. So we have four awards right there. Then next we have the 1951 Italian National Syndicate of Film Journalists, where it won the award for Best Foreign Actress to Gloria Swanson and Best Foreign Director to Billy Wilder. Then for the 1951 Juicy Awards... G-U-S-S-I awards at Juicy. I'm going to say Juicy, right? I'm going to say Juicy. Okay, thank you. Thanks Justice. The Jesse the Award. Don't don't make it weird. Uh, best Foreign Actors Award to Gloria Swanson. Yeah. Then for the 1951 Laurel Awards, it came in third place for the top female dramatic performance of the year to Gloria Swanson. Next up for the 1951 Pitcher Go Awards, we have the second place gold medal for the best actor, William Holden. And the nominated for the Golden Medal for Best Actress, Gloria Swanson. Next up, we have the 1951 Wide, Wide is, <laughs> Writers Guild of America Awards, where it won the award for Best Written American Drama. Then in 1951, we have the National Board of Reviews adding this film to the top 10 films of the year. 
the Best Actress Award goes to Gloria Swanson, and also nominated for one of the, like, oh, okay, it's a double, it's a double film, where it's the best film of the year, but also top ten film of the year. So it was both the top of the top ten, and it was in the top ten for their awards. And then finally, we have the 1950 New York Film Critics Circle Awards, where it came in the third place for Best Actress to Gloria Swanson, third place for Best Director, Ward to Billy Wilder, and second place for Best Film of that year. And that concludes the awards for Sunset Boulevard. I think some of the reasons why this film didn't read, um, didn't get in more rewards, because this film is very critical of Hollywood as an institution itself. And so some of the awards panels might have felt like this film could be kind of divisively received as it's kind of directly criticizing that same institution. Well, we'll get um, to it, because especially for this movie, I believe there was a movie, I think it's in the notes, where Betty Davis had a movie out too, mm. and basically. The, uh, Gloria Swanson and her canceled each other out, so the like the yeah, long, long shot came in. Kind of long shot came in and won. So we'll get to that. Yeah, so there are several reasons why this film didn't win more awards instead of just being kind of an industry sweep, as I think it's kind of remembered as now, because now we know this film is, has this tremendous legacy behind it. But at the time, I feel like a lot more people in Hollywood were uncomfortable with this film for many things it said. Um, so moving on, though, we can go to the technical details of the film. This film has a runtime of 110 minutes. The sound mix is a mono Western electric, Western electric recording. Oh my gosh. This is a black and white film. Aspect ratio is just a 1.37 by 1 or a 4 by 3 there. Uh, film length is 3,024 meters for the release length and um, 3,353 meters for the copyright length. So I guess there's some deleted scenes in there for some of the added things there. And um, printed format, this is, of course, a 35mm film, very common for 1950 films of the era. Um, filming dates, this film was filmed This film was filmed between April 11th, 1949, and June 18th, 1949. So a very um, kind of quick turnaround for the shooting dates for the film overall, which I guess is not to be too unexpected. But that concludes the technical details of the film right there. Moving on to the cast. And, oh boy, we have a huge cast of both silent film actors of their era, kind of making a small kind of like guest on role. And then we also have a bunch of characters playing their real-life counterparts, um, mm-hmm. like answer of like the director DeMille and the producer DeMille, as, you know, in that kind of situation too. So um, this cast is a little bit more difficult. I'm probably going to miss some things going there because I'm going to skip the uncredited roles, which had a lot of sense film actors, as well as some of the actors who are just playing themselves because that's not as notable as the characters they're playing in the film necessarily. Um, so I'm going to try and go through this and hopefully do it enough justice for this little brief part here. So first up, we have William Holden playing the protagonist of the film, um, uh, the protagonist of the film, Joe Gillis. Um, William Holden was also in such films such as Sabrina in 1954, um, Stalag in 17 and 1953, and The Bridge Over River Kwai in 1957. Next up, we have Gloria Swanson playing the role of Norma Desmond. Gloria Swanson um, was also in such films, uh, you know, huge silent film era, as Jimbo already mentioned. And some of those films were um, Queen Kelly in 1932 and uh, Sadie Thompson in 1928. And uh, later, uh, after this film, she put in the film The Airport, um, the film Airport in 1974. So she had, you know, film life after this movie entirely as well, which was mentioned in his bio- mentioned in the biography. Next up, we have Eric Von Stroman playing the role of Max von Merlin. Um, Eric was also in the films The Grand Illusion in 1937. The Wedding March in 1928, and Blind Husbands in 1919. And he was also a writer and director himself, so very much a real-life... He directed Gloria Swanson. Swanson. So it's a very real role for kind of playing together, you know. It's... Norman Desmond is not Gloria Swanson, but a lot of Gloria Swanson is in Norman Desmond. (laughs) That's a, a weird thing to kind of balance in this kind of film as we talk about it, as you kind of mentioned again in your notes there earlier. Um, but yeah, so once again, moving on, we have Nancy Olsen playing the role of Betty Shaver. Nancy Olsen also appeared in a lot of films such as Pollyanna in 1960, The Absent-Minded Professor in 1961, and Big Jim McLean in 1952. Uh, John Wayne joined, if I remember correctly. Next up, we have Fred Clark playing the role of Children. Um, Fred Clark uh, also played through, um, was also in the films Aunt Mame in 1958, Cry of the City in 1943, and Curse of the Mummy's Tomb in 1964. Next up, we have Lloyd, Lloyd Goff playing the role of Marino. Lloyd Groff was also in the films All My Sons in 1948 and The Green Hornet in 1974. Next up, we got Jack Webb playing the role of Artie Green. Jack Webb was also in the show Dragnet from 1951 to 1959. And he was also in the movies He Walked By Night in 1948 and Pete Kelly's Blues in 1955. 
Movie nine in here, we have Frank, Franklin Farman playing the role of Undertaker. Frank Farlin was also in the films The Man Who Took a Chance in 1917 and The, Plain Man, the Plainsman in 1936. Next up, we have Larry J. Blake playing the role of first finance man of the kind of like the um, the creditors that came in to come take the car. Um, Larry Jake was also in the film Hang 'Em High in 1968. Next up, we have Cecil DeMille um, playing the role of himself, Cecil DeMille, the real life um, producer and director. Um, Cecil DeMille is also a producer of the films The Ten Commandments in 1956, The Grody Show on Earth in 1952. And Samson's in the Lila in 1949. So these are the films that he was basically, you know, in the works of, in the middle of showing this film and sets up Boulevard itself too. So that's right, like basically what he was working on, you know, during those films. So mm-hmm. Cecil Mill, like, actually, in the scene where uh, he is actually shooting Samson and Delilah when she comes to visit him on the set. Oh, that's, that's literally that's the film. Actually, the on. film that he was working on. That's absolutely amazing. Um, next up, we have Helda Hooper playing the role of Hedda Hooper. Hedda Hopper, sorry, Hedda Hopper. Hedda Hopper was also in the film The Last Mrs. Cheney in 1929. Then we have Buster Keaton playing the role of Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton was also in the films The General in 1926. Hilarious. Sh- Sherlock Jr. in 1924. And The Cameraman in 1928. Next up, we have Annie Q. Nelson playing the role of Annie Q. Nelson. Annie Q. Nelson was also in the films um, Ponchola in 1923 and Regeneration in 1915. Then we have H.B. Warner playing himself again. H.B. Warner, of course, best known for his role in the um, It's a Wonderful Life in 1946. We have actors such as Ray Evans playing himself too um, from the movie I'm the Man I, the Man Who Knew Too Much, 1956. Jay Livingston, also in the same film. Um, he's in this film playing the role of Jay Livingston and Blelf as well. And um, moving on to the cast list here, I believe that's the only act. Those the only actors who are playing themselves directly in the film. Um, all of the other roles are technically uncredited. Doesn't mean they weren't also stars from the silent film era, as well as uh, taking on different kind of roles themselves. But everyone else is technically uncredited there. So I'm going to move on from the cast list, and I'm going to take it to you, Jimbo, for the trivia notes themselves. A lot of great silent actors there in the in, in the in this movie. I agree. Legendary careers. So here we go. Um, this movie is something else, man. So I agree. When I start going through the trivia, you're going to notice that a lot of is talking about silent actors of that era, uh, some, um, uh, what do you call it, tiffs, if you will, or, or arguments between silent actors and movie actors of that day, and just different stuff. So keep that in mind. This is a different time and era yeah. when this was shot, definitely. And it was transitioning from somebody that was a silent movie star into basically have her come back into this movie so it's very interesting to see how they played it out and i feel like we're kind of prefacing this like the more we dug into it the more kind of intimidated we are kind of by it yeah i don't know if i can do this justice yeah yeah because like it feels like we have a similar label like of depth of knowledge and things we're talking about as like a huge film today like or like titanic or harry potter or like some of those lord of the rings of like stuff you can kind of endlessly talk about films like all that kind of stuff exists here at that boulevard too but it's also at this point you know 70 plus years old or information that is 100-plus years old information that's kind of hard to dig into and parse through and make sure, like, oh, this is right, this is true. So we're kind of intimidated by this film. It's hard to do it justice, but, like, we're going to do what we can. Right, and, and you, know? you know, we've talked about this. It, it's, it, it might even be harder for some of our younger listeners, um, if you will. To well, appreciate. To, the, well, exactly. Yeah. Like, like somebody might be listening to this and be like, well, why would I watch Sunset Boulevard? I had the same thought. Yeah. I started, and, and, and I didn't know what was going on. But she has the creepiest voice. She was so creepy in this movie, it actually almost scared you. Yeah. Um, but it's great. We'll get to it. So here we go. And, well, we'll get to it. I'll, I'll yeah, save it. Go so, for it. Go for uh, it. William Haynes, along with fellow screen veterans Buster Keaton and Anna Q. Nilsson, was approached to play one of Gloria Swanson's bridge partners. Swanson herself reportedly asked him to do it. Haynes declined, and fellow screen veteran H.B. Warner took the part, as Kyle stated in the cast. Eugene Walter was a prolific Hollywood screenwriter of the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, 1851 Ivar Street was the address of the Alto Nido Apartments where he lived, sometimes worked, and ultimately died in 1941. As this film opens, William Holden's character, Joe Gillis, describes himself as a Hollywood screenwriter, quote, living in an apartment house above Ivar Street. As the camera cranes up comes up into the apartment we can see it's the alto nido the apartments and the alto nido sign out front from that is a glimpse briefly in the film are still there wow yeah it, it's really it, it, kind of worth mentioning to do that like 
Joe Gillis is a writing character for Billy Wilder as a person, too. Like, Billy Wilder started in the Hollywood industry as a writer himself, and because he wanted to protect his writing, he became a director as well to basically support his writing. So this is kind of like... Joe, when Joe Gillis is, kind of voices everything about his concerns about being a writer in the film industry, it's basically Billy Wilder's own concerns about Hollywood as a right. general kind of uh, foundation. So really cool stuff going on there. So I'm sure we'll get some of the dialogue portions he puts in there, too. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, the role of Norma Desmond was initially offered to Mae West, who rejected the part. Mary Pickford, Billy Wilder, and Charles uh, Brackett realized when talking to her that her image as America's sweetheart made her unsuitable for the part. And Pola Negri... Billy Wilder rejected her as her thick accent would cause too many problems before being accepted by Gloria Swanson. So they went to several different actresses of that time or even yeah. the silent era. And I believe the other actress with the, it was like a very thick Polish accent that would yeah. be very difficult to kind of convey the emotion in. On the advice of Libby Holman, Montgomery Clift, who had signed to play the part of Joe Gillis, broke his contract just two weeks prior to the start of shooting. Billy Wilder quickly offered the role to Fred McMurray, who turned it down because he didn't want to play a gigolo. Marlon Brando was considered, but the producers thought he was too much of an unknown as a film actor. <laughs> Gene Kelly was then approached, but MGM refused to loan him out. Reluctantly, Wilder met with William Holden, who hadn't done much after the great Hollywood inventor Ruben Mamalouian's Golden Boy. Holden's films after that time had not impressed, or up to that time, had not impressed Wilder. In the 1940s, Holden's movies were uh, decidedly mediocre. They eventually worked together on several films and became close friends. It was largely from his association with Wilder that Holden would enjoy the greatest acting success of his career in the 1950s. I think it goes to serve the film too, too, because like William Holden himself being kind of a cog in the machine, like plays that role effectively right. here, where like he like he, like he doesn't look like he looks like an everyman in a Hollywood format, you know, um, like he does it like a cog in the Hollywood machine in this film and sells it perfectly because that's what he really was in real life too, right? Yeah. Uh, the Desmond Mansion was located not on Sunset Boulevard, but at 641 South Irving Boulevard on the corner of Crenshaw and Irving. It was built in 1924 by William Jenkins at a cost of $250,000. Its second owner was Jean Paul Getty, who purchased it for his second wife. Mrs. <laughs> Get Mrs. Getty divorced her millionaire husband and received custody of the house. It was she who rented it to Paramount for the filming. The only addition was the swimming pool, which wasn't equipped with a means of circulating the water, so it was useless after filming. The pool was used in its empty uh, condition in the movie Rebel Without a Cause. The mansion was torn down in 1957, and a large office building for Getty Oil built on the site still stands on the spot. Huh. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense now. It's, I haven't watched Rebel Without a Cause since we did the podcast episode about it, but I remember that scene, actually. Yeah. That's really cool. It's a small world. <laughs> Uh, the photos of if you if you see this movie, there's photos of Norma Desmond all throughout the house. I mean, it's yeah. just close-ups of her face and everything, which plays a vital role at the end of the movie. But the photos of the young Norma Desmond that decorate the house are all genuine publicity photos from Gloria Swanson's heyday, which is very interesting. That's amazing. She I wonder how much of that lady, stuff dude. still exists today, in like at some Paramount backlot somewhere, or if it burned down and you know we always hear yeah, about burning like down on some yeah. fire or something. Mm -hmm. Eric Von Strolem could not drive in real life, which played Max, uh, if you remember the, the, the chauffeur, Butler. For scenes in which he drove, the car was towed by another car. When he drives Norma to Paramount Pictures at the studio gates, the car was pulled with a rope by off-camera grips. Despite that, Von Strolem still managed to hit the gates. He had no coordination, said Billy Wilder, in an interview for the book Sunset Boulevard from Movie to Musical. According to the DVD commentary by Wilder, biographer Ed Sickoff, this story was most likely invented or exaggerated by Billy Wilder. <laughs> That's funny. I like that. Uh, cameo as himself, Cecil B. DeMille at the studio during Norma's visit. Also had a hopper at the top of the stairwell as Norma descends towards the camera. Uh, I like how they put all those act where they played themselves. Um, I think it's cool. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille had a pet name for Gloria Swanson. Uh, he called her Young Fellow. He said it was because she was braver than any man. Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder retained the term of endearment for the scene in which DeMille greets Norman Desmond at the door of the soundstage. And I thought that was funny. I was like, why did he call her young fellow? But now that's what he always it's called It's kind of like her. an endearing quality. That's really great, actually. I love that. Yeah. Uh, the name Norma Desmond was chosen from a combination of silent film stars Norma Talmadge and silent movie director William Desmond Taylor, whose still unsolved murder is one of the greatest scandals of Hollywood history. On the morning of February 1st, 1922, Taylor, who had been romantically involved with her, was shot and killed in his Hollywood bungalow. His killer has never been identified. 
but you kind of could presume it could be you know, a lover, a scorned lover of some sort. Sure. Okay, wow. So, yeah. Let's uh, and back. also, I think it's in here about this time, uh, the Black Dahlia was going around. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It I, wasn't too too far away. I think 1947. Hollywood was not a safe place in that era. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's safe today. Uh, the fee for renting the Jean Paul Getty Mansion for Paramount to build was uh, for Paramount to build the swimming pool, which features no memorable. <laughs> so they said, "Hey, you can you can rent this if you build a swimming pool." <laughs> So they know they didn't put the circulation for the water in the swimming pool. Yeah, they just made a hole. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll take a hole. Uh, Eric Von Strom dismissed this partic- his participation in this film, referring to it as that butler role. Set <laughs> <laughs> uh, non-holiday all-time house record of 166,000 at New York Radio City Music Hall when it opened. Yep, opening weekend, $169,000. Yeah, but it's a non-holiday, so... Oh, so yeah, it's even a, more exceptional, right. man. That's cool. In 1989, the National Film Registry, as Kyle said, uh, selected this as one of the 25 landmark films of all time. Mm-hmm. In 1998, the American Film Institute selected this as the 12th greatest film of the 100 greatest movies of American movies of all time. And in t- 2007, the American Film Institute went back and ranked it this has the 16th greatest movie of all time. That's incredible. And it deserves I, yeah, every well accolade deserved. it gets. You know, it, it's one of those things where it's just like, yeah, well, it's a it's a transitional piece of like, this is a different, this is a one era to another being reflected back on it. Right. Yeah. Uh, the original nitrate negatives for the film have long disappeared. The only extant film elements were 35mm interpositive struck in 1952, which had undergone a great deal of decay. This interpositive was scanned at 2,000 lines of resolution electronically restored for the 2002 DVD reissue. The restoration was performed uh, at Lowry Digital by Barry Allen and Steve Elkin. A new 4K high-definition scan was done in 2008 for the film's release on Blu-ray disc. Wow. It's amazing what they can do, man. Yeah, and I imagine it must be like an incredibly difficult job that I feel like really goes um, unsung in the Hollywood industry, actually, because I'm sure it's a huge part of the industry, oh, but yeah. like... I never hear anyone talk about the actual process of doing it. And always changing, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, The direction given by Paramount Guard for Norma uh, and Joe to meet Cecil B. DeMille on stage 18 is accurate. This stage, one of the largest on the Paramount lot, was known for years as the DeMille stage. And now it's called the Star Trek stage. (laughs) As all the Trek movies and some scenes from the TV shows have been shot there. The TV series from Star Trek The Next Generation onward had its main uh, sets right across the street, uh, Studio Street, on stages 8 and 9, which are right below the second floor office occupied by Betty Schaefer in this film. Those offices later became the home of the Star Trek art department. That's amazing. Yes. It really does give a cool, uh, just an amazing sense of legacy of just like you can go from like, you know, from today all the way 100 years back, just like all these films were made here. Uh, it was George Kukar who suggested Gloria Swanson for the role of Norman Desmond. Billy Wilder had worked on a script for a Swanson picture years earlier called Music in the Air and had forgotten about it. The antique car used as Norman Desmond's limousine is a 1929 Isada Francini Tipo 8A, a luxury car made in Italy and once belonged to 1920s socialite Peggy Hopkins Joyce. It was a gift from her lover, automobile magnate magnate Walter Chrysler. Only 950 were made from 1924 to 1931. This car has been on display on the national uh, or at the National Automobile Museum in Turin, Italy, since 1972. If it were to come to auction in 2021, it would have been valued at well over a million dollars. Wow! Yeah, Kyle, I went. You I can go buy that for me like and show for me around. I can only imagine one of that drive. That machine must just drive, like trying, like just like steering a bull. And not only that, what about the phone or whatever they had in there? Remember, yeah. she calls to the back with like the like absolutely insane. That, that was like having like a monster on wheels. It must did it drive. I don't know. Uh, May West rejected the role of Norma Desmond because she felt she was too young to play a silent film star. Montgomery Clift was originally cast as Joe Gillis, but quit the production two weeks before filming because he had already played the kept man of a wealthy older woman in. The heiress. Clift was also wary of appearing in the film because he, like the character Joe, was having an affair with a wealthy older former actress, Libby Holman. (laughs) Holman was reportedly worried the film would parody their relationship and told Clift she would commit suicide if he played the role. (laughs) Didn't realize how accurate she was. (laughs) Jeez. Nice. So, uh, Gloria Swanson almost considered rejecting the role of Norma Desmond after Billy Wilder requested she do a screen test for the role. 
Her friend, George Kukar, who initially recommended her for the part, told her, if they want you to do 10 screen tests, you do 10 screen tests. If you don't, I will personally shoot you. Oh, my God. Swanson agreed to the audition and won the role. Uh, the movie's line, all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Man, at the ending of that was just ridiculous. Heartbreaking. Crazy. Because she's really lost it at that point. She yeah. is one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Mm-hmm. I was voted the number seven movie quote by the American Film Institute. It is also one of the most frequent misquoted line movie lines usually given as, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. The other line, I am big, it's the pictures that got small, was voted number 24 out of 100. Also, we didn't need dialogue. We had faces, which I love that. That oh, is an beautiful. awesome saying. Yeah. Quote was number 13. I am big. It's the pictures that got small was ranked at number 91. There's a lot of good quotes of this. It, 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 it's, it's crazy how that rings truer now. I, I think know. It did. <laughs> when I think about the streaming world today, that is a huge statement, a profound statement to say today specifically. <laughs> Uh, Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett's 17th and final screenplay collaboration. After the completion of this film, Wilder shocked his longtime collaborator by announcing that he wished to dissolve their partnership. This was a result of a fierce quarrel over a, a montage scene in the film. The two men never worked together again, so they disagreed about something in this movie. Mm. Paramount was more than happy to be the subject of the film and didn't ask for the studio to be disguised. In fact, such was the buzz about the film uh, during production that the viewing of the dailies became one of the hottest tickets on the lot. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It adds to the believability of film. It feels tactile. In it's a way. like, oh, this having, is really happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it really does. It just it feels all the more real because of it. Because having a real, and, real I, brand and you know, there. being movie fans, you get to see the backstage stages of Paramount like it was. It was. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it really feels like the first film where you get a glimpse of what Hollywood machine is. Right. Which is the whole point. It's awesome. According to Gloria Swanson's daughter Michelle Amon, her mother stayed in character throughout the entire shoot, even speaking like Norma Desmond when she arrived home in the evening after filming. Oh, On the boy. last day of shooting, Swanson drove back to the house. She, her mother, and daughter shared our daring production, announcing there are only three of us in, in it now, meaning that Norma Desmond had taken her leave. <laughs> boy, she was creepy, man. Um, I'd be scared if I was that kid. It'd be really hard to occupy that headspace for days on end. I don't know how you do it, or weeks on end, I guess. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille agreed to do his cameo for a measly $10,000 fee. And... <laughs> And wait, how it's not done. And a brand new Cadillac. When Billy Wilder listened, when Billy Wilder went back to him later to secure a close-up, DeMille charged him another ten thousand dollars. My man, Cecil DeMille, get paid. Get that money. As a practical joke, during the scene where William Holden and Nancy Olsen kiss for the first time, Billy Wilder let them carry on for a few minutes without yelling "cut." He'd already gotten the shot he needed on the first take. Eventually, it wasn't Wilder who shot a cut, but Holden's wife, Artis, who happened to be on the set that day. Jeez. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. Uh, the first floor set of Norma Desmond's mansion was also used in the Western comedy Fancy Pants, starring Bob Hope and Lucille Ball, giving fans a chance to see it in full color. Really? Yep. That's awesome. The musical version of this movie opened in London on July 12, 1993 and ran 1,529 performances. It opened on Broadway at the Menskoff Theater on November 17, 1994, ran for 977 performances, and won the 1995 Tony Awards for the Best Musical Book and Score. And before I forget, I don't think it's in here, but I do believe that I've seen that they're going to be remaking this with Glenn Close playing Norman Desmond. Oh, if I, if I remember I, seeing that on IMDb. I'll look, I'll look that up. I think she was the only character that had been announced. Okay, I'll look it up. Um, and I think it's a musical. I think. If I, 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 I could be wrong, but... I will investigate, Timbo, on your behalf. Uh, Daryl F. Zanuck, Olivia de Havilland, which, you know, we, we love her, uh, Gone with the Wind and, and uh, Robin Hood, uh, Tyrone Power and Samuel Godwin all refused to allow their names to be used in the film, but Billy Wilder decided to use Zanuck's and Power's names anyway, Oddly enough, the recluse Greta Garbo granted permission to use her name, though when she saw the film itself, she was sorry she had done so. She felt that Wilder used her name in a past tense context, and she was offended. The drugstore where Joe Gillis meets with his old movie industry friends is Schwab's Pharmacy, then a real pharmacy soda fountain at the intersection of Sunset Boulevard and Crescent Heights Boulevard in West Hollywood. It was widely known as the top Hollywood hangout for many actors, directors, writers, and producers. F. Scott Fitzgerald suffered a heart attack while in Schwab's in 1940. Contrary to legend, Lana Turner was not discovered by a talent agent in Schwab's, but rather in a drugstore across from Hollywood High School, about three miles to the east. 
Schwab was torn down in 1988 to make way for a movie theater and a shopping center. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the article right now about Sunset Boulevard remake, and uh, yeah, Glenn Close is part of that project, but it's still kind of like a kind of a gestating project right now right. because Paramount did pass on it. So not going anywhere right now. May never, may do. You know, it's just one of those things where it's always just like on the cusp of maybe happening. Yeah. Uh, Lux Radio Theater broadcast a 60 minute radio adaptation of this movie on September 17, 1951, with Gloria Swanson and William Holden reprising their roles. Oh, I wonder if that's on YouTube somewhere. When Norma Desmond says to the guard at the Paramount Gates, without me, there wouldn't be any Paramount Studio, the words could apply to Gloria Swanson herself as she was the studio's top star for six years running. When Joe and Betty stroll around the studio backlot, they pass through the Washington Square that set that was used in the heiress movie, The Heiress. Uh, Gloria Swanson, Swanson was paid 50000 plus 5000 per week for any time over schedule. Uh, to help promote the film, Gloria Swanson did a three-month tour of 36 cities in America and Canada. Wow. Uh, when crew members asked Billy Wilder how he was going to shoot the burial of Norma's monkey, one of the film's most bizarre scenes, he said, you know, the usual monkey funeral sequence. <laughs> that was so weird, dude. Like, she had a pet monkey. It, I don't know if it was a monkey that started movies with her or if it was just her pet monkey. Just her I, pet monkey. It's it's kind of, like, they kind of pass over it so fast you almost forget it even happened in the film. But yeah, she did have a pet monkey. And she said, like, in like the way um, uh, Joe Gillis frames it, like she was burying her own child when she has that funeral in the backyard. Just, whew, what a weird scene. Yep. Uh, the character of Norma Desmond is modeled on the fate of several leading actresses of the silent era. Mary Pickford lived in seclusion away from the public eye, while both Mae Murray and Clara Bow uh, had well-documented struggles with mental illness. And here we go, Kyle. To get around the restrictions of the Breen Code, B-R-E-E-N Code, the script was submitted piecemeal, meaning it was... Uh, Submitted several pages at a time. Kyle, what is the Breen Code? Okay, so basically, um, well, originally it was just called the Film Code strictly, and it was similarly, or the Hayes Code back in the day as well. And it was just to um, created um, created to wish in, to tell the studios what they could or could not depict or infer on screen. Um, from the sublime to ridiculous, this code would ensure that civilization wouldn't go far off the deep end, as their intent goes. This code was to ensure uh, it, it would not truly be enforced though, until 1934, when Joseph Breen, whom this code is being referred to name after um came to helm of regulating the film industry um censorship um, um so basically it was just a similar kind of like you know the Hayes code or similar like comic authorities action or something like that where they were just trying to keep you from you know um keep depictions of deviant behavior in films so what you're saying there is they submitted only a couple pages at a time <laughs> it's so got around it huh? get around that kind of um that level well of because there is what there's the suicidal tendencies in this there's murder there's yeah Stuff that, like, if you read one page of out of context, maybe it doesn't seem that aggressive. When you put them all together, it does Shoot imply it? a lot right. more going on. So, uh, like, struggle in the bedroom, it doesn't mean, oh, I slipped my wrist, I have a gun in here, you know? Exactly, yeah. Struggle in the bedroom could mean, <laughs> I struggle. <laughs> okay. uh, Kyle, they got a little blue pill for that. Uh, for <laughs> some scenes, cinematographer John F. Seitz would sprinkle dust in the air so it could be caught by the lights and create a moody effect. Seitz had used a similar technique on double identity. But that's cool how we just throw that up in the air and catch dust, so that's cool. Uh, costume designer Edith Head found working on the film to be one of her greatest challenges. She worked closely with Gloria Swanson on Norman Desmond's wardrobe as she figured Swanson would have a better idea of what women of that time would have worn and what they would be wearing now. Probably right, too. For purposes of authenticity, Eric Von Strom, who played Max, and Nancy Olsen, who played Betty, I think her name was, wore their own clothes in the film. <laughs> Sorry, we got money for your clothes. Exactly. <laughs> oh, also, man. they had the right outfits for the era, so it made sense. You know? All right. Uh, makeup designer Wally Westmore found that Gloria Swanson's face belied her age and wanted to make her look older. Swanson argued that a woman like Norma would have been obsessed with her appearance and would have done her utmost not to look old. Westmore and director Billy Wilder agreed with this, so William Holden was made up to look younger than he was. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille appeared in the film on a studio set. This was the actual set of Samson and Delilah, which DeMille was making at the time, so that's awesome. It's a, it's a cool crossover to a degree. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, after a private screening for Hollywood dignitaries, Barbara Stanwyck knelt in front of Gloria Swanson and kissed the hem of her skirt. The veteran actress uh, particularly wanted to see what Mary Pickford felt and was disappointed that uh, to see that she didn't she had already left. Swanson told 
I was told she can't show herself, Gloria. She's too overcome. We all are. Not everyone felt the same way, however. Louis B. Mayer's reaction was well documented, but May Murray also found the film offensive. Yeah, I can understand. There's a lot going on there for sure. Yeah. No, I just have to move on from that. Yep. <laughs> One of only 13 films to be nominated for Best Film, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Director for the record, and other 12 films. Uh, there's only been uh, uh, 12 other films to achieve similar feats, and they are as follows. Let me know if you've seen these. Mrs. Miniver? Nope. Johnny Belinda? Nope. A Streetcar Named Desire? Yes. We're going to be we're gonna be covering that sometime. Someday, yeah. From Here to Eternity? No, but you own it. <laughs> Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? No. Bonnie and Clyde? Yes. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Yes. Network? Yes. Coming Home? No. Reds? No. Silver Linings Playbook? Yes. And American Hustle? Yes. So those are the only other 12. Wow. Cool. I had more than I thought. (laughs) And one of the biggest upsets in the Academy Awards in history, Judy Holliday won the Best uh, Actress Oscar in 1951 for Born Yesterday, beating Gloria Swanson in this film and Betty Davis in All About Eve. It was widely believed that the two Titans had canceled each other out, leaving the field clear for Holiday. In later interviews, Davis admits that she thought Swanson's walk in the film was absolutely outstanding. Oh, yeah. so sorry. Swanson's work, not walk. <laughs> work. Work, yeah. Ah. Yeah. Uh, it's just always like you have, to, you have to lean on, it's an honor to be nominated kind of category. You're just like, ah, yeah. yeah shut up. <laughs> shut up. Uh, <laughs> in subsequent years, two lawsuits have been filed against Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett claiming that Sunset Boulevard was plagiarized from other scripts. Both suits were dismissed. Hmm. I kind of want to know what they were, though. Yeah, curious. Uh, Billy Wilder wanted Hedy Lamarr to appear in a cameo in the scene where Norma and, jo- and Joe visit Cecil B. DeMille at Paramount. As DeMille was directing Lamar at the time in Sansom and Delilah, this would not have been no problem. However, however, DeMille insisted that Lamar be paid $25,000 for the oh privilege, gosh. so the idea was like... Quickly dropped it. Nah, yeah, I, I think not. Yeah, I think not. This is <laughs> that would have been cool though, man. Yeah, it would have been interesting. Norma's bed originally belonged to French actress singer uh, Gabby Desless. Universal bought it on her death in 1920, and it was used in several movies, most notably in The Phantom of the Opera. Oh man, you know it actually could be kind of cool if like you just do a cool little like rip off scene or you like you just like pirate buff those two movies and you cut in that Samson Delilah scene in the middle of that one Hollywood scene just to see what the film they were the filming that day that would be a really cool just a weird sort of the moment thing it was like what were the film they were showing and you just, you just intercut it in the film itself it'd be really cool uh, you do that as a, a bootleg kind of thing <laughs> I don't do that buy legal copies of films and don't ever pirate them together yourself. <laughs> uh, to shoot Joe and Norma dancing together at her New Year's Eve party cameraman John F. Seitz used a dance dolly a wheel platform attached to the camera it was the same technique that he used to shoot Rudolph Valentino's Tango in The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Cool. Billy Wilder originally approached William Hayes to play one of Norma's bridge partners. Haynes, whose career had ended because of his homosexual off-screen life, was too happy with in his new profession as an interior design or interior decorator to want to call attention to his past as an actor. In his place, Wilder hired Buster Keaton. Hmm. When Gloria, sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when Gloria Swanson finished Norma, uh, Norma's final scene, the mad staircase descent, which is epic, yeah. she burst into tears and the crew applauded. Even though it wasn't the last scene film, Billy Wilder threw a party for her as soon as the shot was finished. For the, indus- uh, for the first industry screening, Paramount executives invited several silent film stars. At the end, they stood and cheered for Gloria Swanson's return. That's awesome. Absolutely beautiful. <laughs> to publicize the film, Paramount sent Gloria Swanson on a cross-country tour, paying her $1,000 a week for her services. Uh, of course, it's including the 1,001 movies you must see before you die. Uh, there are several references to Gloria Swanson's actual career in the film. Norma's butler, Max, who used to be one of her directors, is played by Eric von Stroheim, uh, who directed Swanson in the movie Queen Kelly. Clips from which are used in the scene where Norman and Joe watch one of her old films. Norma goes to visit Cecil B. DeMille, several of whose films Swanson starred in. So, a lot of... Kyle, did you eat my paper there? A lot of history there. I got hungry while you were in the bathroom. Uh, when Artie Green introduces Joe to other guests at his New Year's Eve party, he jokingly refers to himself as the well-known screenwriter, uranium smuggler, and the Black Dahlia suspect. Well... The Black Dahlia, you know, was found murdered in a on Street in Los Angeles uh, in 1947. Um, 
It was still very, very recent at the time. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a, a toasty joke, a spicy one right there. <laughs> now, now we just brush it off. But back then it was like, ooh, ooh, what boy, if, that's a what if, what too if, real. <laughs> what if Norman Desmond was the Black Dahlia killer? <laughs> exactly. Gloria Swanson does a famous impression of Charlie Chaplin as the little tramp, but Chaplin's name is never mentioned. She does such a good job. adorable. She is... Just nails it, dude. Oh, my God. Wow. I mean, it is perfection. Trying to fall in love with Gloria Swanson when they're impossible. I know. <laughs> just, just, She's just awesome. <laughs> Even as they're playing Norman Desmond, it's like, absolutely. She takes, like, like this one. Just adore the, her. The match and makes the mustache. Oh, my God. Own. It's so good. It's so smart. Uh, features the uh, only Oscar non-performance of Eric Von Strom and Nancy Olsen. Buster Keaton appears on the bridge party scene and utters the word pass twice. He was a big bridge player. I highly recommend anybody watch that documentary I bought on Voodoo. I thought they were going to tell people to watch play bridge. <laughs> I mean, play bridge if you want to. Yeah. Uh, when Joe and Norma sit down to watch one of her old movies, he Joe pulls out a cigarette and places the bottom end in his mouth. This indicates that he's smoking filterless cigarettes, which was the norm for that era until filters became the standard after the mid-1950s. Oh. Wow, filters that old? I didn't realize yeah. that. Cool. Uh, well, Mad Men, yeah. This movie was the inspiration for Metallica's 1997 song, The Memory Remains. I've not listened to The Memory Remains. No, my memory's faded. Uh, Schwab's <laughs> Pharmacy was filmed only 500 feet from where Robert Defense Foster shot out of the phone booth and falling down. Although they don't have a scene together in this film, Hedda Hopper and Buster Keaton have worked together in the 1932 comedy Speakeasy. Both Keaton and Hopper died the same day on February 1st, 1966, at the ages of 70 and 80, respectively, both in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> the Undertaker, no, not the wrestler, uh, who appears for a few seconds early on with a white casket for Norma's deceased pet chimp, was veteran actor Franklin Farnham, who played extras in over 1,000 films during his lengthy but unsung career. 1,000 films. Franklin Farnham. Wow. That dude, I. Then he did it. Then he went to the Tombstone Pile Driver. He, he's like the he's like the glorified extra, I guess. <laughs> just, That's awesome, man. I mean, good for you, man. I uh, was like, somewhere there's gonna be a list of every film he's been in now. I don't know if I even has that good. Well, you have to look that up yeah. now. I'll, I'll look him up right now. Don't uh, worry. I got it. I got it's it. It's Franklin F R A N K L Y N. Jimbo, I got the cast list. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. We probably don't though. Watch. It's right there on the bottom. Yeah, right here. Okay. I got it right here. Uh, this was the last major Hollywood feature film to be shot on nitrate stock. Kodak would discontinue to manufacture it altogether in 1953. Silver nitrate. Highly, <laughs> highly flammable. <laughs> Just explosive. And they're smoking. <laughs> That's how Quentin Tarantino killed Hitler. <laughs> uh, throughout the film, Max never smiles. Same. I mean, he's just a butler. <laughs> Uh, here we go. The shot of William Holden floating in the pool with the policeman leaning over him almost never happened. The production crew was not prepared to shoot underwater, but a technician suggested that a large mirror be placed in the pool underneath Holden and a shot from above giving the perfect impression they needed, which fantastic. Yeah. Okay, Franklin Furman on the IMDb credits. He has a credit list of only 670. So, but still, I'm saying only 670, but still, it's like only half of the roles he was actually played in roles, so it's uncredited roles. But still, 670 credits. What was the last one he's credited with? The last like, one he's credited with this was the Pirates of Tortuga, where he played an uncredited merchant in 1961. Wow. Wow. What year did he die? Uh, he died in yesterday. Oh, he died in 1961 at the age of 83 on July 4th, Independence Day, 1961. So. My dad wasn't born yet. <laughs> Gloria Swanson played his her final descent on the staircase barefoot as she was terrified of tripping in high heels. Since her part required her to gaze at the newsreel cameraman and, and fans, the waiting police, basically, uh, they gathered in the foyer below. She couldn't watch where she placed her feet. She burst into tears upon completion of the scene. There's a little dig in the scene where Cecil B. DeMille finds out that Paramount had been calling Norma Desmond because it wants her to rent the car for the Crosby picture. The truth of the matter was that Bing Crosby was one of the very few actors to whom Billy Wilder had borne a grudge against, mainly because Crosby had done the unthinkable during filming of The Emperor Waltz, an ad-lib dialogue. Oh, no. Something he and Bob Hope had done for years, a standard operating procedure in their breezy road pictures. Charles Brackett and Wilder were just as adamant that nothing, and I mean nothing, in their script should be changed and nothing new added. Jeez. That's funny. (laughs) 
nowadays you can just get their whole films out of it. And last but not least, it was Eric Von Strym who suggested the revelation that Max was writing all of Norma's fan mail, which was a very touching part, too, because she thinks she's still getting all these fan mail all these years later, and so it's actually her butler writing them because he cared so much about her. so much about her, but also incredibly sad and just fed into her delusions. Right. Yeah. All right, Kyle. The, that concludes my notes. So let me let me let me hear about Sunset Boulevard. Eh. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. eh. Take it or leave it. No, um, no. This film is uh, uh, you know like how, how my moods can fluctuate. How I score movies day to day too. But there's no denying it has to be a ten. It just has to be. This film is film legacy incarnate. It is a personification of film in many respects. You like if you're a film historian, if you're a film buff, you have to watch Sunset Boulevard now in a way that I feel deeply uh, uh, insecure that I haven't watched it beforehand. You know until this moment, um, it is just quintessential to understanding you know uh, the transfer from one era to another in this film itself, a celebration of the sounds film era and a damning report on the working situations in Hollywood of that era that even carry on to today in contemporary Hollywood. Uh, it's everything. It's the whole ball of wax. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a pretty much, a, you know, on level of a perfect film, you know, in many respects where, uh, there's nothing to really criticize because it just holds up that well today. There's things that are said about it that will never not be relevant in many senses. And uh, I adore it. Um, it's just a groundbreaking film. Um, can't say enough good things about it. It just has to be. It has to be appreciated. It demands to be appreciated, and it will be. It will be. Um, I mean, this is a film that, like, above all the films, I think will be remembered forever as one of the greatest films of all time, and it deserves it. So that's where I kind of stand on it. There's no way to kind of bring it down, in my opinion. Jimbo, how do you feel? You know, Kyle, this is one of the times we're going to have to agree on something that's few and far between. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Her performance, Gloria Swanson's performance as Norma Desmond, is one of the creepiest. Um, man, she's rich and she knows it, and she's like, you know, for somebody that rich, you think she would upkeep her house a little bit, you know? It's kind of ran mm-hmm. down with like weeds on the outside and all that, yeah. and and she's just she's so rich, but she's also so self conceited with all those pictures of her in her house and everything, and just how she basically traps him because she just wanted him to help write a story. And she's like, no, 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 we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And she's out buying him, like, luxury suits and all that. Yeah. And fur coats and all that. And, you know, it's in L.A. It can't get that cold out there. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. But as much as, like, if Norma fixes anything about her house, that's a little part of her admitting anything was wrong to begin with. Exactly. And that's a, I love that you just care for Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think the Unsung Heroes also is, uh, man, Nancy Olsen or whatever her name is. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is fantastic yeah. at this. Yeah. Um, uh, she just wanted to be a struggling uh, actress, and you can see the chemistry she had with writer, yeah. uh, William Holden. Yep. Them two together was just chemistry, yeah, but, amazing chemistry. But there. I mean, I cannot say enough for uh, Gloria Swanson in this movie. I mean, she probably got robbed of that Oscar or Emmy or whatever yep. because she absolutely deserved it. And, and you know, I went to some of the quotes of her life too that were also really amazing too. But like, it just it went to show that like, as much as Norman Desmond is like a completely like kind of a crazy person who like fed into her own ego so much that she lost all sense of reality. Gloria Swanson absolutely went the exact opposite way. I think she was actually very humble and very respectful of the industry she was a part of and uh, really understood her place in it and is actually a really cool, um, cool-headed person, all things considered, and really understood her, you know, what she was doing in her life at that point. And um, if you're a fan of movies, uh, I mean, you know, you can be a fan of action movies, Marvel, etc., the CGI today, but a true fan of movies that goes back and watches old black and white movies, even some of the silent era movies, to see where movies have come from and to where they are now, you will have so much respect for this movie because it gives you just a little glimpse of what was happening in Hollywood in the early 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just seeing Cecil B. DeMille on, on screen will, just made it for me too because yeah. you know we've, we've covered several of his movies mm-hmm. and talked about several of his movies. But again, can't say... I think everybody should watch this at least once. And... Not only if you don't know any of the silent um, actresses and all that. I mean, I knew who Buster Keaton was because I've watched some documentaries and stuff on him. But even not knowing half the people in this, it still held my attention. It's a good movie. Yeah. Um, it gives and, you respect for the incomparable the incomparable amount of work that it took to get from there all the way to where we are now. And he is kind of, and William Holden's kind of stuck there with her. Uh, what's his name? Joe. Mm. He's kind of stuck with her. Yeah. I think he kind of cares for her. But yeah. I don't think he loves her. Does that make sense? He yeah, wants to yeah. make sure she's well off and taken care of. I guess he kind of 
kind well, of loves he, it's a different kind well, of love time, I guess. he also recognizes that he's he's essentially selling his soul to her in many respects too he like he, instead of like having that true creativity to create new inspiring works he's instead of working on this dead script for a woman who only values him you know for basically his body and youth and willing to make him make her feel young in some respect too so he knows that he's selling out there and that's why it kind of like eats away at him too where the point he has to leave but he realizes at that point he's too far in so yep. Gloria kills him it's a incredibly uh, sad story <laughs> Yeah, it's somebody, it's somebody, that, somebody that's, um, you know, you know that's that, very made throughout the film that uh, the butler, Wax, which is her ex-husband, he's like, look, there's no locks in any of these houses because, you know, she's tried to kill herself. He said, there, you cannot have any razor blades, any knives, you won't find any of those here. And what she do, he leaves in a, in a tiff and she goes and gets one of his razors and slices her wrist. He yeah. comes running back to her. And then later on in the film, she's like, yeah, I went out and I bought a gun. And I'm like... What? She's like, yeah, it's a wrong bill. See, you didn't think I would do it. This is at the end of the movie. You didn't think I would do it. <laughs> yeah. He's like, well, whatever. I'm packing my bag. I'm leaving. And that's when she shoots him and he falls into the pool. And I like how they did that where they started off with him narrating his own death. And this is the whole story. So excellent film. Can't say much too much about it. Hope we did it justice. Make sure you guys check it out. You won't be disappointed. Kyle, tell the fine folks what movie you chose <laughs> to do the next time. Oh, that's right. What movie did I choose? It is... The best <laughs> Sylvester Stallone movie we could have possibly selected. Is it Rocky? We know. No, no it's not is Rocky. It, is, is it, uh, what else is there? Stop where my mom was here? No, Stop is it Assassin's? No. <laughs> it is Nighthawk. Nighthawks. Nighthawks. And I will have to tell the story behind this. Kyle and I were eating breakfast this morning. I said, Kyle, did you see this movie on sale on Voodoo? He's like, no, what is it? I said, well, Sylvester Stallone. I said, and he's got a beard and mustache. And he said, What? I was like, I don't even know what year it came out, dude. It had to be like early '60s or yeah. late '60s. Um, but and he just was like, "That's a clip of it." And, and we were just, just talking appeared. about what movies we're going to cover. And he's like, "Oh, we're doing that one." I said, "Really, Kyle? Really?" Mm-hmm. Just because he has a beard, he's like, "Yeah." So if this movie is terrible, it's Kyle's fault. So if you want to reach us, we are the Tragedy Cinema Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, follow us on Facebook, uh, the Tragedy Cinema Podcast. Well, without being said, Kyle, I think I'm ready for my close-up, Mister Zayner, and cut. Bye, good.